Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Pamela Paul, the editor of the New York Times Book Review, and also the woman who directs all of the paper's books coverage. Paul is a prolific author herself, and she's written books on marriage, parenting, and pornography addiction. Her latest book is My Life with Bob. Bob stands for Book of Books, her journal of all the books she has read over nearly three decades. It is a memoir of her life as a reader and the ways in which the books she has consumed have shaped her and her relationships. Pamela Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Uh, So I guess we're going to talk about your book for a bit, and uh, I'll say some nice things about it, and then you can give me some good coverage when my book eventually comes out in The New York Times. Is that the... Oh, I, th- I thought you were going to give me an, a chance to rebut you on how good my book is. Oh, well, there, there's time for that, too. Don't don't worry. Okay. Um, so I, I want to ask you, um, your book is sort of a memoir of your life as a reader and the way which those the books that you've read have shaped you. I'm wondering kind of what putting all of that together as a book, what that experience was like, and if going back over these experiences made you think differently about your reading life. Well, that that's the big question. <laughs> that's that's pretty much the entire book. I mean, first of all, I started off the book the, when I had the original idea. I didn't think of it as a memoir. I thought, well, this is a book about books and about reading. Um, and then as soon as I started really thinking about an outline and, and writing it, I realized, um, well, no, it's not really about the books. Um, I didn't want to write a book of literary criticism. I didn't want to write a book about the books themselves. I wanted to write a book about the space between a reader and what he or she reads and how the accumulation of a lifetime of reading, or hopefully um, only a half of a lifetime of reading, um, a third, come sort on. Sort of Be- shapes who you are. Yeah. Yes, a third. <laughs> One fifth. Um, shapes who you are and um, both drives who you are and reflects who you are and what that relationship, what the interaction is between what you read and how you live. Well, so for people who don't know you and where you're from, I mean, do you want to – when did you become a fairly compulsive reader and at what age and where were you in your life? Um, well <laughs> – I, I I should say my life itself is fairly unspectacular. Um, it's I, I grew up on Long Island outside the city, and my parents divorced when I was little, so my dad lived in the city, and I spent uh, weekends mostly in the city. Um, and I was a reader, I think, from as early on as I can remember, but I was a reader who I felt, at least I felt, um, grew up in a state of total want and deprivation. Um, I never felt like I had as many books as I wanted. Um, books were, they, they still are, quite expensive. They were really expensive in the 70s and in the circumstances that I grew up um, in. Books came from the library. You didn't really own them. Uh, and the few that we did own were sort of hand-me-downs, um, mostly from older brothers, and therefore not necessarily the books I wanted. So I, I I had lots of books about trucks and lots of Richard Scarry, which would not necessarily have been my preference. What was the first few books that, that really you felt made an impact on you that still register today? The books that made the biggest impact as a very young reader— 
were biographies. And there was a wall in the back of the children's library in the town where I grew up. The library was a few blocks away from where I lived and right across the street from school. And I moved to this town in second in the second grade. And my routine was, because kids were allowed to do this back in those days, I would walk to and from school by myself. And on the way home, Um, My mother worked. I would stop at the library and basically spend the afternoon there and then take myself home uh, when it was time for dinner. And uh, in that library, there was a wall in the back of biographies. They weren't – it was the children's uh, library. They weren't especially well-written or wonderful biographies. But for me, they were – my sort of life guides. I would go through them. I mean, I still remember kind of alphabetically. It was, you know, Abigail Adams and Clara Barton and um, Helen Keller. And uh, back in those days, and I was mostly interested in reading about women. Um, There weren't many to choose from. It was mostly presidential wives and and nurses. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, those were the books that I loved best. And to me, they... They, they were almost like roadmaps. They were like if 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 they all, you know, were very um, traditional chronological biographies. And I felt like if I knew the steps that these women had followed, that perhaps I might one day, you know, achieve something or become someone worthwhile. There is something about I mean, I felt that as a young reader, too. There's something about biographies combining someone's life with this kind of larger sense of history that you're discovering that is incredibly, incredibly nice as a young reader. Yeah, I mean, I still, frankly, I'm reading a biography right now, so um, it, it hasn't ceased. You know, one of the things about the the book that you keep touching on is the way in which sort of people give you books and what that says about them and or if someone in a relationship gives you a book, what that says about the two of you. And you have a quote from uh, one of your colleagues, um, Rachel Donadio at The Times, who's, which is in the book about books and relationships. Can you can you uh, tell people sort of the gist of that quote? Well, I think it says a lot more about the people and the relationship than it does about the book. The book is is usually like a tool. Um, I mean, not all the time, but very often um, it's an imperative. It's a demand. It's sort of it's set. There's some message hidden in that giving a lot of the time. Um, and the, the piece that Rachel Donadio wrote uh, was a great piece about um, sort of deal breakers, um, books that if someone is reading um say, a potential boyfriend or girlfriend, it sort of signifies that the relationship is not going to work out. Um, and I have a whole chapter on the idea of book recommendations and, and what they signify, because when you give someone a book, it there's so many things you might be saying with that that gift. You might be saying, like, you should really read this, or I think there's something in here you need to know. Why don't you know this? Um, there's some, you know, there's something within that book that you obviously want that person to read. So it's it's um, I'm sure that, uh, you know, uh, psychologists could uh, and couples therapists have a field day with uh, this whole concept. But um, it's like you, you're sending someone a coded message within that book a lot of the time. And sometimes you're just, you know, being nice and wanting to share your love for a book. But not all the time. For people who haven't read the book, what was the most coded or most fraught message you've gotten in, via a book? Oh, God. I mean, the, the, the best example that comes to mind is the way that one of my um, older brothers, Roger, would uh, recommend books to me, which um, the, it wasn't a request and it wasn't like a, uh, a suggestion. It was really an imperative. I felt like when my brother Roger told me to read a book, that's what he did. He told me to read a book. It was basically like, if you don't 
read this book, you are no longer my sister. And um, he just felt like we did have a kind of uh, we have a very similar sensibility and a kind of mind meld. And even though we haven't lived in the same city for many years um, and when we were young, we were separated because he was a few years older than me. So we were not often in the same school and he went away to college. But he would give me a book, um, for example, A Confederacy of Dunches. I remember he gave it to me on a weekend. We were at a family um, bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. And he said, you know, read this book right now and don't talk to me until you're done. And <laughs> and I did. Um, I will say that it didn't go in two directions. And uh, there is one time that I talk about in the book where I I basically cut a deal with him. Um, there were there used to be these really cheap package trips you could do to Russia. And um, we uh, both really wanted to go to Russia. We both loved Russian literature. He had forced me one weekend similarly to read Master and Margarita. And I said, look, I'll make you a deal. Um, he wasn't making a lot of money at that time. And I wasn't making that much more. But the, these cheaps were these trips were cheap. So I said, let's both read War and Peace. And if you read it, uh, then I will pay for both of us to go on this trip to Russia together and we could talk about the book. And he said, you know, deal. Um, so I made all the arrangements. I read War and Peace. I was super excited to discuss it with him. And he, every time I checked in, said, you know, I'm on it. Um, but we were reserving the the full, you know, literary conversation for the motherland. Um, when we were in the air, I was like, all right, <laughs> let's talk about it. And he was like, oh, I didn't read it. I, I meant to, but I didn't read it. So that's kind of the way that went. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Your book made me think that people need to have a real gift to give books in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm always pressing – the two books I'm always pressing on people are Middle March and A Suitable Boy. And I, I want to sort of say to them, I want you to read this because I think it will – you will love it. But it's hard – not to sort of shade into the area of you should read this because it's, you know, a matter of improving yourself or you should read this because one should read Middlemarch, you know, that that's sort of a moralistic tone to it. It's a it's a real skill to to just offer someone a book and say, you know, I really think you will like this. Yeah, I think giving books is kind of fraught, I have to say. I mean, it sometimes it's really wonderful, but it's it's a real guilt-inducing present because if somebody gives you like a shirt or a tie that you don't like, um, you can nonetheless sort of, you know, get yourself to put it on uh, when the give, giver uh, is in town or whatever. Um, but to read a book is a time commitment. So um, and, and people often confuse their tastes with your own. It's interesting, though, that you use those two examples because um, – I have experiences with both of those books in a way that I recount in my life with Bob. Um, the first is Middlemarch, which is a book that I gave to my husband uh, early on in our relationship before we were married. And I, I gave him three books. And, and which um, will make you a better person, I should add. That's Unlike, right. Yeah. And one yeah, of those was Middlemarch. Yeah. So let me ask you um, just a couple of quick book questions for you about books. You, one of the things you talk about uh, Catch-22 as a book that made you laugh out loud. Um, what other books are, are in that category and do you find your sense of humor has changed over time? My sense of humor is pretty immature, so it hasn't evolved um, that much. Um, I do still think Catch-22 is an incredibly funny book. And I think one of the reasons I remember laughing out loud at that book so much is that I was recovering from some surgery. And so it was quite painful to laugh. And I, but I couldn't, I couldn't stop it. I remember also, I think around that same period, it's a kind of like teenage, like reading um, uh, circuit that you make reading um, Slaughterhouse Five. And I think it's in that book that the main character, whose name escapes me, because one of the points of this book is that I, 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 I 
very forgetful about what I read. The main character gets in the backseat of a car while extremely drunk and is searching around for the steering wheel um, for like a lengthy, at least couple of paragraphs maybe of time before he realizes that he's not in the front seat of the car, but is in the backseat. And um, that also made me laugh out loud at the time. Um, you know, not a huge number of books make me laugh out loud. Uh, more books make me cry than laugh, which is probably a sad thing um, to admit. But um, yeah, I think it's hard. And I think it, I think it's especially hard because, as I said, my sense of humor is, is uh, quite immature and it runs to the slapstick. So I prefer to see people, you know, falling downstairs and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I remember reading then, Lolita on a train and starting to laugh and then worry that people were looking at me like, you know, it's 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 um, the, the book that the rare book that can actually make you laugh out loud is very, very rare. Yeah, it's interesting because my predecessor at the book review, um, Sam Tannenhaus, uh, didn't believe that books actually ever made anyone laugh out loud. So um, I, I adore Sam, but I think that that's on him because I, I I really do think that I know that books make people laugh out loud. And as a consequence, he would never he would sort of not want that to appear in book reviews, that something was laugh out loud funny because he didn't believe that it was possible. Um, but I do know that it is, as do you, because you laughed at Lolita. Yeah. Let me ask you about your job now at The New York Times, because you are both the editor of the book review and you oversee all the newspaper's books coverage. And so how has your job changed since you went from just editing the book review to taking over all the paper's book coverage? And sort of what I think people would be interested just to know, like, what, what is your average day engaging with all the books that are out there like? Well, for one thing, it means that the the uh, my book will not get reviewed in the New York Times um, because I'm uh, the boss of it all, and therefore it would be a ridiculous conflict of interest. But beyond that, um, little uh, selfish component, um, the job has changed a lot because um, the New York Times's approach to books has changed, um, and uh, we the New York Times book review um, is, of course, very much inherently um, a print concept. It's, uh, you know, started in 1896. Being the editor of that print publication is very different from dealing with things like late-breaking publishing news, you know, awards, prizes, scandals, plagiarism, um, as well as um, daily critics um, and news stories around publishing, whether it's, you know, the the news that broke recently um, or didn't break about the O'Reilly um, and the relationship uh, that he has with his publisher, um, or it's um, a story out of uh, one of our bureaus. We did, um, uh, for example, we were doing more stories about the way that people read in other countries um, as part of this new desk. So we had a story about um, out of the Istanbul office about how this book, Madonna in a Fur Coat, that was published 75 years ago in Turkey, has suddenly become popular in Turkey in that country again. And, and why is that? And what does that mean? Um, so that's it. Those kinds of newsy stories uh, were not part of the New York Times book review, which is essentially about reviewing books. Um, now, instead of looking at a book when it comes into the office and asking the question, does this book merit a review or not? The question has evolved into, does this book merit coverage or not? 
And if it does merit coverage, what does that coverage look like? Is it in print at all? Is it digital only? Is it a review? Is it a profile? Is it a feature? Is it a recommendation? Um, so uh, it's it's really broadened the way I've looked at books. So you find that, you said broadened. I mean, do you, you find that sort of freeing in some way or ex- expanding the way you think about it? It is freeing, um, and it 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 uh, it offers us a lot of possibilities of covering books in different ways than we did before. The New York Times Book Review, um, in its sort of previous earlier print only days, um, or at least print centric days, was uh, a section that was we have a team of editors and we go through books, but we didn't have any reporters, we didn't have any staff writers. Um, so if we saw something going on in the book world, we couldn't say like, "Hey, let's do a story on that," because that's not what we were. We were a book review. Um, so it was it, it could be frustrating because you could see trends happening or things going on, and we didn't really have the power to leverage the resources of the rest of the newsroom around that idea. And now we do. So that's that's exciting. And and it is exciting, I think, to I mean, look, the internet is out there and people read about books online. It's exciting to be able to tailor our coverage to that audience um, as well as uh, the print readership. The Daily Paper has daily critics. There are, I think, three of them who review books, and you kind of get a sense of who they are, and they review one or two things a week. And then the New York Times Book Review, I mean, there are regular contributors, but broadly speaking, it's freelancers writing pieces about books. And and those those two ideas seem very different to me. And I was wondering, now that you oversee both of them, um, what you think are the, the pluses and minuses of each way of doing it? It's really interesting because it it they do they are very different. Um, you're absolutely right. So the New York Times is the only newspaper in the country that has three full time staff critics. The way it works with them is they pick which books they want to review. Um, and so when you read their reviews, it's really it is it is about following a critic's taste. Um, then what we do at the book review is is a very different process. So rather than the decision starting with the critic, at the book review, we start with the book. So the editors go through all the books that come in to the book review every week, uh, and it's an enormous quantity. Um, and the top editors will divide the books among our preview editors, our staff editors, who will then go through them and decide which books they want to review and which books they want to skip. And then the question that they ask themselves each of the books they choose to have reviewed is, of all the people out there, who would we most want to hear? Who would I most want to read? Who would New York Times readers most want to read on this book? So it might be, you know, uh, an established book critic who does it. It might be a novelist who also writes criticism. It might be someone totally out of left field, but that someone who is interesting to read on a subject. For example, uh, Bill Clinton reviewed the last Bob Caro book um, in his uh, ongoing series of uh, LBJ bio, uh, his LBJ bio, he did uh, volume four. And uh, Patty Smith reviewed uh, a Murakami novel. So sometimes it's, it's you know, going a little bit further afield to find an interesting voice. We went to the artist Kara Walker for Toni Morrison's last novel. Um, so it's sometimes an unexpected voice because because there are instances in which, especially with some of the bigger books, where we will review a book twice. So you will get the established critic Michi um, Michiko Kakutani reviewing a book, and then you might hear from someone who offers a totally different perspective, perhaps is, a novelist or a poet reviewing. Is there a danger with someone like Bill Clinton or a celebrity who's not 
primarily a book reviewer, that either they don't know how to write a proper review or that they're very hard to edit because it's Bill Clinton? Well, yeah, Bill Clinton actually was was uh, he was terrific to work with. Um, but um, uh, and that was a review that that Sam Tannenhaus edited while he was uh, still at The Times. But um, the. You know, I think that what you get with uh, an outside critic, especially one who's not in the profession, is it is a different take. Um, so it might not read like a traditional book review. It might be more of an essay. It might be more personal. Um, it's true that not everyone knows how to write a book review. I mean, frankly, a lot of reporters don't know how to write a book review. A lot of novelists don't know how to book review. Um, you can be an excellent writer in another form and really not know how to write a proper book review. Um, and, you know, in some cases, we will end up writing it because it's running it almost as is because it's an interesting piece of writing. Um, and in some instances, uh, you know, people are open to being edited. And, and you know, some people will say, like, look, I've never done this before. Help me out here. Um, so, you know, sometimes we offer a little guidance in terms of how to do it well. Do you feel that like I mean you're a person you're in New York you're a pretty social person you go to book parties you so, so on I mean do you feel that people treat you in a certain way because of your role at the Times I'm talking about within the book world I'm not saying you're Jennifer Lawrence when you go out that you know everybody on the street recognizes you <laughs> right um, it's, it's it's a very different level of celebrity let's be clear um, actually I I, I I walked down the street for the very first time with a real actual celebrity um, a few uh, like about a month ago and I'd, I'd never been in the wild with a real celebrity usually I'm in like an enclosed room in the rare occasions that I am with non-book celebrities with, you have with to tell us who the celebrity is now that you drop that uh... Oh, do I? Okay. Well, it's, it was the very lovely Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, and okay. to walk down the street with Sarah, Je well, you know, and now she is a book person because she has her own imprint um, at Crown. Uh, so she's both um, and, and a very astute reader, too. Um, but in any case, I was walking down the street with her and everyone reacted in such a way that I thought, like, is there a terrorist? Like, it, did a bomb go off? Everyone on the street is freaking out. And I couldn't figure out what it was until I realized, like, oh, of course, I am walking down a street in Manhattan, you know, with with Sarah Jessica Parker. And uh, and that is why people are going nuts. So no one does that with me. Um, my husband gave me a word. Uh, it, it wasn't really a word of advice so much as it was a reality check when I got this job. And he said, well, now you're not going to be able to take any uh, compliments to heart anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, because everyone is going to be kissing your ass. Uh, so you can't believe anything anyone says. And I found that very disappointing. And I said, like, what if it's a really nice compliment, like a really good one? Can I believe those? And he essentially said, you know, no. <laughs> the nice thing about that is, though, that also the criticism uh, you don't necessarily have to believe, um, or certainly the kinds of criticism where people are angry over review. And the truth is, most of the time, the editor really has nothing to do with the review itself. I mean, we're journalists here. We don't edit people's reviews to change their opinion. So the review itself is on the critic. That doesn't prevent people from getting mad at me. But the nice thing is, is that I, I it, it, it doesn't upset me in the way it would if I had nothing to do with the book review and people were just sending me nasty emails about things I had done. That I would take personally. <laughs> right. Well, no, but I mean, along the lines of what your husband was saying, I mean, when you send your book out, I mean, your book, I'm looking at it now, you have you have blurbs from good writers and you're going to get reviews. Do, does part of you think, oh, in the back of my mind, you know, people are doing these things for me because I'm the editor of the New York Times book review, I guess? 
<laughs> well, thanks, uh, um, Isaac. Did, did, way to take away all the nice book reviews. No, I mean, the nice thing, I, I felt very good about the trade reviews I got because those are unsigned trade reviews. And and uh, and thus far, at least, I, there's no wood for me to knock on here, but um, thus far, they've been very kind. And that, to me, felt meaningful because those people, those trade magazines, they have nothing to to gain from me. Um, so uh, those were personally extremely gratifying. Um, and in terms of blurbs, um, that was actually a very careful process that I worked out with. You know, we have an ethics and standards editor at the New York Times, and I worked out a process by which um, certain people uh, that I could ask that I didn't have a conflict of interest. Because I, I do feel really strongly about uh, the issue of conflicts of interest at the Times, um, at in our books coverage. And I felt like that should apply to my own book as well. And I didn't want anyone to, you know, I, I would never have gone to an author who had some vested interest in pleasing me to ask for a blurb. When um, when you're at like at a at a party or something like, you know, has anyone any writer that the New York Times book review is savaged? Have they ever like been really rude or any any experience like that? Oh, yeah. Um, but usually they like to do it behind my back or on social media where they think I won't see them. So any names? They don't have to be as big as Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> no, I'm not going to name names. I'm very delicate. Okay, fair enough. Um, uh, you know, it's funny when I was when I was doing research for this interview, and I noticed that you wrote a book called Pornified about people who watch too much pornography and porn addiction and what it's doing to society. What I was shocked when I was looking at this was that the book came out in 2006, which is 11 years ago now, um, which seems 2005, like, actually. 2005. Okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. And um, it just I, I couldn't believe that we'd been having this conversation for 12 that your book was, you know, had come out 12 years ago. Um, you were clearly one of the first people to write about this. And I guess I was wondering, since this topic you still read about, what you make of sort of the discussion about this now, at one level, it seems like people think porn is even more prevalent everywhere and is having an effect on people's relationships. At another level, it's 12 years later and the world still seems to be spinning on its axis. I mean, what what do you think when you think of that book now? Well, um, I'll answer the, the, the earlier question first and then go back to the book itself. Um, I, the world may still be spinning on its axis, but it is interesting to me that a number of books have come out subsequent to that that have um, reaffirmed what I reported on in that book and and have seen some of the implications further down the line. Um, and I think especially with regard to um, kids and their expectations about um, sex uh, after being exposed to pornography online. And there was actually a book that uh, we review in the book review, and I was interviewing um, our reviewer on the podcast, on our podcast this week, the book review podcast. And uh, she was saying that one of the books was specifically, it was about the clitoris and the role of the clitoris in sex. And I said to her, like, didn't we do this in the 70s? And she said, yes, but the person who wrote the book felt that the um, the understanding of women's uh, pleasure in sex is so distorted among this generation in particular because of pornography that she felt that these points had to be made again and that the research had to be shown so that people had a realistic understanding of uh, women's sexuality and pleasure in um, sex. So that was that was interesting to me. When that book came out, that 
writing that book um, and having it published is a very useful experience to have before having this job because I know what it's like to be attacked for a book. I know what it's like to get a very negative review. And um, and I know what it's like to have your book misread. And all of those things have led me to feel uh, like I owe it as the editor of the book review to be responsible um, and to be respectful of the fact that every author, almost every author, I mean, some people just pump them out um, or have a ghostwriter or whatever, but most writers, for them, writing a book is a really big deal and they put their heart into it and um, they might only write one book in their lifetime. It might be their life story. It might be a story they needed to tell. And that even if a review is negative, um, it shouldn't be vengeful or gleeful or uh, disrespectful of the hard work. And as a reviewer, um, I always try when I was reviewing, I don't review anymore in my current position. Um, but I always tried, even when writing a very negative review, which I did continue to write even after I got a negative review for that, some negative reviews for that book. Um, I always tried to point out what the author did well, because it's very rare that a book is, you know, completely useless. And if it is, generally speaking, it shouldn't have been sent out for review. Um, editors are, are sort of doing a triage and sending things that they think are worthwhile. So I always tried to point out um, what an author did well. And as an editor now, I try to make sure that uh, our reviews are fair and respectful for those reasons. Pamela Paul, uh, the book is called My Life with Bob. Uh, Pamela, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Don't miss an episode of I Have to Ask. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, please take a few moments to rate and review the show. I'd love to hear from you as well. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com.